All right, Cher is here to come and say a word and read the scripture for this morning. Well, good morning to everyone. Uh, I'd like to send my love and best wishes to all of our Westside Chapel family. I'm glad that we're able to um, meet like this, even though it's not quite the same as actually getting to see you. I was thinking, uh, and may have told Ken, that I feel like we're in one of the Law & Order lineups behind the special glass where <laughs> you can see us, but we can't see you. So I don't like that so much. Um, I am really thrilled, though, to um, be able to stay connected in this way, and thank you so much for joining us, and also want to send lots of love and thanks to those friends and family that are also viewing today and thank you for joining us and wanting to be a part of the, our service this morning. The scripture passage that I'm going to read is from 1 Peter, as you well know, uh, chapter 1 and verses 20, uh, 17 through 21. And if you address as father the one impartially, who impartially judges according to each man's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Ken and I will continue to pray for each one of you that God will keep you safe and healthy. And we just look forward again one day soon, I hope, that this special glass will be broken and we will be able to connect eye to eye and face to face and just love you and just pray for God's blessings upon you this week. Bye-bye. Thanks, honey. <clears throat> okay, let's join together in prayer as we uh, come to God's word this morning. Father, we pause now and ask that the Spirit of God would give great understanding as we open your word together today. May we be able to put others' activities and goings on aside for just these few moments, and may we be able to hear and receive all that you have for us through your word, in Jesus' name. <clears throat> it's a universally accepted maxim that privilege brings responsibility. The saying in its current popularity is sometimes attributed to Uncle Ben in the first Spider-Man movie when Tobey Maguire was Spider-Man. Well, it's been found in the writings and speeches of Voltaire, Winston Churchill, uh, Presidents Theodore and Franklin uh, Roosevelt, and President Kennedy. But long before any of those, the principle was established with Abraham. In Genesis 18, God said, For I have chosen him, talking about Abraham, but that's the privilege. God says, I have chosen him 
in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That's the responsibility. The privilege of being chosen by him, the responsibility to teach his children and their children after that the ways of the Lord. And by that, that was God's plan to bring the knowledge of God to the world through Abraham and the nation of Israel. And God applied that same principle to the nation of Israel in Exodus 19. The Lord said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, and you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. That's the privilege. God had chosen Israel among all the nations to be his people, to be his possession. He continues, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the responsibility. Israel was to live as a holy nation. Well, Jesus enunciated this same principle as well. And from everyone who has been given much, shall be required. And this principle is the basis of what Peter is saying in the first chapter of the book of 1 Peter. He has reminded us of the great blessings that we have received in Christ. That's the privilege. Last week I said that's the indicative and the imperative always follows the indicative. But that's the grace that we have received. And then he exhorts us in how we are to live in light of those privileges of that grace. So that's the imperatives of grace. That's the responsibilities of grace. So we continue with that theme in our passage today with the responsibilities of grace. Now, just to review quickly what we've seen, in verses 1 through 12, Peter has presented the great privileges and grace that is ours in Christ. We are God's people in the world. We have a living hope in the resurrected Christ. We have a glorious inheritance. We have a secure future. And we are part of the great time of God's salvation, of which the prophets spoke and for which they longed and which angels can only observe these are the great privileges of God's grace that we enjoy. And then Peter says, Therefore, because of these great privileges, we have a great responsibility. We have the responsibility to be fully engaged in following Christ. Gird your minds for actions and keep sober in spirit. In other words, he says, be serious about this. Get in the game. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't be casual about it. Be fully engaged. And secondly, we have the responsibility to reflect the holy character of God in our lives and live holy and Christ-like lives. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Be holy in every area of your life, in every relationship. So Peter continues now with the responsibilities incumbent upon us because of the privilege, privileges and blessings and grace that are ours in Christ. And this is what he says in our passage today. We must live with a healthy fear of God. We must live with a healthy fear of God. Verse 17. 
And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. Peter begins with the fact that we now have the privilege of addressing God as our Father. This is a great and wonderful privilege that we have through Christ. Now, it was true in the Old Testament that God was the Father of Israel, but now he has revealed himself as the Father of all believers in a much more familial relationship. It is now personal. It is now intimate. It is Abba, Father, now. It is Papa. That's an amazing privilege that we have. But you know what often happens? We take advantage of this relationship and we think we can live the way we want because he's our Papa. But what does Peter remind us of here? He says God is our Father. He is Papa. But he is also the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. Peter is not talking here about the God's judgment upon the unsaved. He's talking to believers. And he refers to this attribute of God that has a bearing upon us as believers. And so it refers to God's judgment on believers. Not to determine our eternal destiny, whether we're saved or unsaved. That's not what's in view here. That's not what he's talking about. But rather, the examination of our lives as believers the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to what Paul says about this, virtually the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5. For we, notice he says we, including himself, believers. He's writing to the believers in the church of Corinth. He says we, as believers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We will all be summoned to stand before the Lord one day and our lives will be evaluated and will be recompensed, will be awarded whether we have done good or bad. And then the very next verse, Paul applies that to himself. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 14. Each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And notice in our passage here that Peter says, God will judge each man's work. Each person will one day stand before him to have his life examined. So Peter is reminding us of the truth that there will be a serious and impartial accounting of our lives before the Lord. God will judge us impartially. It means that he doesn't play favorites. It doesn't matter what title or position someone might have. He will judge us impartially. 
Karen Jobes, in her commentary on 1 Peter, puts it this way. The intimate relationship between the believer in Christ and God as Father does not give license to the Christian to live as he or she wishes. For God judges morality impartially. The special privilege of calling God Father does not excuse the believer from nevertheless being judged by God because every person will be judged by God according to the same standard. So in light of this, what should we do? Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. Conduct yourselves in fear. Now the, word, the, the words conduct yourselves, that's an expression that refers to the entirety of our lives as we live out our lives in all of our daily activities. That's what that expression means, conduct yourselves. As he said in verse 15, Earlier, he said, in all our behavior. The question, though, is what does he mean by fear? Conduct yourselves, live your lives and in all that you do in fear. I thought fear was done away with. I thought perfect love cast out fear. Well, we often try to define the fear of God in terms of reverence or respect. Fear just means have a reverence for God. Well, certainly that's part of it. But we need, we need to go beyond that. To fear the Lord means we understand God in the fullness of his attributes. That we see him not just in terms of love and grace and mercy, but we see him also in terms of his holiness and justice and righteousness as well. I think Peter actually provides the context for understanding the fear of God. And it is this, we must never lose sight of the fact that we will stand before God And he will impartially judge us according to our works. We must never lose sight of that truth. He will impartially evaluate our lives as believers. And so, yes, we should fear that. Not in the sense of God is an out-of-control tyrant waiting to beat us. But, that we will give an account of our lives to him. So the best way that I know how to put this is to say it this way, to live with a healthy fear, not cowardice or paranoia, but knowing that he does love us, knowing that we are secure in him, but knowing also that we will give an account of our lives to him. We don't fear punishment, but we do fear his disappointment in us, his displeasure, 
even his rebuke. Let me try to illustrate it. Um, I think we do this instinctively in many other areas in our lives. We all seek the approval of certain people in our lives, those we deem as important. We do all we can to seek their approval and avoid their disapproval or displeasure. As children, we seek the approval of our parents. And not just as small children, even as adults, even for those whose parents are no longer living, we still in some ways desire what would have been their approval. We say things like, boy, dad and mom would have been proud. Oh, I wish they could have been here to see this. The way we work at our jobs is no doubt motivated by our desire of the approval of our supervisor. It could be a coach. Oh, I used to live for the approval and commendation of the coach. To hear him say, good job, Kenny Mitch, good job. Oh, I mean, that meant everything. That was my motivation, have that approval from the coach. <laughs> but I also remember times when he said, Kenny, you let me down. I'm disappointed. I thought you were better than that. Oh, man, that was awful. It was like a knife in the heart. And the same sense of the desire for the approval of God should affect the way we live our lives every day. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 7. He talks about perfecting holiness, growing, maturing in our holiness, just as Peter has instructed to live a holy life. Paul says perfecting this holiness, maturing, growing in holiness in the fear of the Lord. Yes, we grow in holiness now because we fear that one day we know we're going to give an account of our lives. In Philippians 2, Paul says, work out your own salvation. Live it out, not work for it, but work it out, demonstrate it, live it out with fear and trembling, knowing that we cannot just live the way we want to without consequences. We are going to give an account of our life to the Lord. And so Peter is saying that we should live our lives each day mindful of this, with this healthy fear that we will stand before our Father who is an impartial judge and if we took this seriously, it would make a difference in the way we live. And then Peter gives us another reason why we must live with a healthy fear of God and that is the price of our redemption price of our redemption. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter speaks here of salvation, our salvation in Christ in the imagery of redemption. Redemption, as you may know, is 
the release of a person in bondage by the payment of a price. Now, specifically in the Greco-Roman culture, a slave could receive his or her freedom by depositing money in a temple of the god, which money would then go to the slave owner. The owner of the slave would be paid, and that would then give the slave his freedom and release. But the slave was considered to be then a slave of the god. He is said to have been redeemed by that deity. And Peter Peter seems to be using that imagery here. A price paid for our release, and we become then a slave of God. But his focus here is on the price that was paid for our release. It was not simply silver or gold, as would have been the case, you know, for a Roman slave. But the price that was paid was the precious blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ always stands for the death of Christ in which his blood was shed. And using the imagery of the Old Testament sacrificial system, where a physically unblemished lamb was killed as a covering for sin as a substitute for the one bringing the lamb. In other words, God accepts the death of the lamb as a substitute for the death of an individual. It's a picture that his wrath against sin was poured out on the lamb, the substitute, and not on the individual. So Peter says that Jesus, who was morally unblemished and spotless and perfectly sinless, he is the substitute lamb for us. And his blood and death is the price that was paid to secure our release from bondage, our redemption, our release from the bondage to our sin. And Peter says that we have been redeemed from our feudal way of life. Jesus paid the price of his blood and death to purchase for us a new kind of life. He purchased us out of the bondage of sin so that we might now live for God. Through the payment of that price, we are set free so that we might live a new kind of life, a new way of life. And this adds to the responsibility to live our lives for God. Such a great price was paid for our release from our old way of life. We have an obligation to live for the one who paid for our release. We have an obligation to live the kind of life for which we were redeemed. He paid the price of his blood so that we would live a different kind of life. It's our responsibility to do so now. And then Peter adds even more significance to the one who paid for our release with the price of his blood. Verse 20, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. 
We have the word foreknowledge here, as we did in verse 2, where it says we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. In verse 2, it was a noun. Here, it's a verb, but it's the same word, prognosco, and uh, it's just as a verb here. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and it doesn't mean that God just knew that Christ was going to die. It's like he looked down the corridors of the future and saw that, oh yes, if I send my son, then he's going to end up dying. Not that he knew it in that sense. It means that before creation, before the foundation of the world, God planned our redemption. And in that sense, because he planned it, he knew that Christ was going to die. The plan was made before the foundation of the world in eternity past. And then Peter continues, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. That pre-creation plan of redemption has now become reality with the coming of Christ. And it was for us, for your sakes, he said, that he has come. Verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It is through the coming of Christ and the work of Christ, his death and glorious resurrection and ascension, that we are now believers in God. And we have faith in Christ now and a certain and secure hope for the future. So our redemption did not just happen as an afterthought, nor was it anything of our doing, but we are part of God's eternal purposes of redemption. And by his design and sovereign will, he has included us. And therefore, therefore, we have the responsibility to live for him. So the imperatives of grace, the irresponsibilities of grace, what is incumbent upon us as recipients of God's grace? Well, we have the responsibility to be fully engaged in following Christ. Gird your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. We have the responsibility to reflect God's holy character in our lives and live holy and Christ-like lives, like the Holy One who called you be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And we have the responsibility to live with a healthy fear of God because he is an impartial judge before whom we will one day stand to give an account of our lives. And we want to live in such a way now, each day, in all areas of our lives, that we might receive his approval and commendation so that we do not experience on that day, his displeasure, his disappointment, or his rebuke. And we have the responsibility to live with a healthy fear of God because of the great price that was paid for our redemption, the blood of Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross. He has redeemed us 
from our old life that we might now live for him. Now, I would like us to use some creative imagination for a moment. Picture yourself standing in line, waiting to go before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I don't know how that judgment seat is going to take place. I don't know what it'll be like, but let's just picture it, if you would. Please indulge me. Just picture it as you're standing in line, a long line trailing out, and you're being called one by one to appear before the Lord. You're waiting for your name to be called. You're getting closer and closer to the front of the line. Try to put yourself there. You are about to give an account of your life as how you have lived your life as a believer. All of our hidden secrets are about to be revealed. Author Gabriel Garcia Marquez says, everyone has three lives, a public life, a private life, and a secret life. Well, all of our lives are going to be open before him when we stand before him. And we can't spin it. We won't be able to spin it because he knows all. Now, think about that and what might be going through your mind as you are standing in that line waiting to appear before the Lord. We might be thinking of all the things that he might bring up and ask us about and might not be too happy about. And it might be going through our minds, what was I thinking? Why did I keep doing that? It just doesn't seem that important now. Why didn't I change? Why did I treat her that way? Why did I say those things to him? Why did I pursue so many things that they're not even here now? If those are the things that you might think about then, those are the things that you need to deal with now. Let me offer a suggestion. As you think about those things, isolate some of them. You know, get, get clear about what some of those things are that you know you would not want the Lord to address when you stand before him. Isolate some of those things and make them matters of earnest prayer. Get serious now about changing those things in your life that you know the Lord is not pleased. Don't think they're going to change on their own. Maybe you need to get help or counsel. I'm not saying you have to go see a counselor, but that's certainly not out of the question. If there are issues that you're really struggling with in your life, you need to get help. Maybe, you know, the pastor, it's an elder, it's a friend. 
get help. And yes, we have the Holy Spirit who can enable great change within us, but it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We need to get in the game here. Focus on it and make it your priority. Ask someone to pray with you about it. Don't wait before it's too late. This is at least part of what it means to live with a healthy fear of God. Would you follow along as I lead in prayer? Gracious Father, thank you again for your word that you've given to us. And we pray now that as your word is heard, that the Holy Spirit would use your word in the lives of those hearing, Lord. And we pray that you would be pleased to give great understanding in our minds and in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves as, as you do, help us to see those things in our lives. Help us to admit those things in our lives that are not pleasing in your sight. But even more than that, Lord, help us not to be comfortable, satisfied with those things. Lord, give us that healthy fear of standing before you one day that we might do our best now so that we would not hear words of disapproval or displeasure or even rebuke. Lord, we want to hear those words of commendation. So help us now, today, Lord, to prepare for that time in the future. Accomplish a great work in us, Lord, among us, in all of those who might be hearing your word today. We pray in Jesus' most holy name.